And welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe find us on the podcast, anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not. They're doing some amazing work. I am here, Stephen Ostetter, with a special episode with Professor Stephen Sharper, friend of the show, to talk about the connection between sustainability and democracy. Might be the part of a longer series. We're not sure yet, but right now, so stoked to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stefan. And thanks for all the great work you do on CIUT for raising these issues for us. Much appreciated. Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, and so the impetus of this conversation came from you. You were sort of thinking about this. And so I want to give you a chance to sort of just open it up with uh, your, your founding thoughts. Why did you start thinking about the connection between sustainability and democracy? And yeah, where do you sort of see that intersecting? And then we'll go from there. Okay, no, thank you. Yes, well, I've been concerned about democracy for a long time and some of its challenges and threats. But this concern has been heightened over the past year, particularly in the United States, with the rise of a kind of extremism, particularly in the Donald Trump campaign and the kind of bold, egregious, and authoritarian tendencies and articulations that he's been making. And as one who teaches environmental studies and is interested in sustainability, and yet one who's also deeply concerned about democracy and justice and equality in our culture. I was wondering, how can that connection between sustainability, ecological integrity, and democracy be articulated in a way that can respond to these challenges to democracy that we're seeing here in North America? So that's part of the background to why I began to think about this area and see the correlations. And there recently has been material written on this from different points of view. Routledge just did a handbook exploring democracy and sustainability, largely from a Western European perspective, but nonetheless looking at some of the theoretical underpinnings around these two concepts, often seen as positive concepts, democracy and sustainability but also looking at the undersides and the challenges for both. So these were some of the currents that I was diving into as, a, as an amateur swimmer in these areas in some respects, and yet nonetheless as a concerned citizen for what the rise of authoritarianism would mean for Canada, for North America, for the world, particularly if someone like a Donald Trump were to be elected next year. Awesome. And I'm realizing that for our listeners who, who may not have heard a previous episode where you've been on, it might be helpful to also spend a second talking about sort of your bona fides and where you come from. So can you give us a, a brief update or heads up or information about your work and sort of how you come at this problem? Yes, thank you. So as mentioned, I teach environmental studies at the University of Toronto, but I also have appointments with the Department of Anthropology at the U of T Mississauga campus, and also with the Masters of Science and Sustainability Management program at the UTM campus. In addition, I also have an appointment with Religious Studies and the Toronto School of Theology. So spirituality, social justice, and ecology have been the main threads of my work since I've been at the University of Toronto for the past 20 years. Part of that is how do we see the connectivities between marginalized persons and marginalized ecosystems and species? How do we respond to what Pope Francis has called the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor? And how do we integrate those theoretically and pragmatically? So my work kind of sloshes over those areas, but something that infuses it as well is a spiritual sensitivity, not simply religious, but also people's spiritual connectivity to the more than human world. And in my classes on ecological worldviews in particular, we look at consumerism, for example, as a worldview. We look at 
a kind of neoliberal economic paradigm as a worldview, as well as certain religious worldviews. And in addition, we look at a paradigm of the more than human world and worldviews of indigenous scholars and activists who talk about this deeper interconnection of the human and the more than human. And how does that play out in terms of social, economic, political, cultural, and gender depression? So that's a bit of the lay of the land of some of the things that I've been looking at. Awesome. Sorry, carry on, sorry. Yeah. So in approaching this idea of democracy and sustainability, I'm interested not only in the social and political dimensions of both, and obviously the ecological implications, but also kind of the deeper worldviews and, for want of a better term, spiritual connections behind both paradigms. In other words, when Al Gore was writing about environmental crises in the 1990s, in his book, Earth in the Balance, he described it as a spiritual crisis, even though as a politician, he knew how dangerous it was to use that term. But he said, what other word speaks about how our deepest emotions and sensitivities relate to the wider challenges we face? It touches our spirit. So this is something that I try to explore in terms of these conversations. Awesome. And so the one other sort of ecosystem setting, shall we say, question I would love is this idea about sustainability. Because more often than not, within our current context, when we're talking about sustainability, everyone immediately goes to uh, environmental sustainability, which is obviously a part of this conversation. However, when you look at, say, the Sustainable Development Goals or the SDGs, and when we think about what really a sustainable ecosystem or a sustainable society looks like, it's much more broad than that. So can you give us sort of how you think about the word sustainability and how that plays into this conversation? Yes, thank you for that question. The environmental crisis runs along the same fault lines as social, economic, political, racial, and gender depression. In that sense, sustainability crosses all of those fissures and divides. Traditional understandings of sustainability, as you know, fall into categories. One is sustainable development from the Brundtland Report of the late 1980s, saying that we have to meet the needs of present generation without sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So there's a kind of futuristic dimension to sustainability of people meeting their needs. And as you mentioned, the SDGs of the United Nations look at social, cultural, economic, political ideas around sustainability. In addition, an interesting offshoot is there's now consideration for an additional sustainability goal. And I'm in dialogue around this, around sustainability and spirituality, that people are realizing at the international level that this is more than a policy change, that it involves, as Thomas Berry, the geologian, would say, a new reimagining of what it means to be human in terms of the non-human reality, in terms of the crisis we face. And that touches on the world's spiritual, faith-based, and also imaginary traditions. So this is a new conversation that's happening, and that's one that I'm part of, in how to articulate these kind of more ephemeral and less tangible connections we have with the more than human world as a jumpstart inspiring launch pad toward new reflections and ideas. Also, of course, in corporate social responsibility, you have the three pillars. One is social, one is economic, and one is ecological. So all three horizons have to be attended to, and there has to be a flourishing in all areas. So sustainability, as you point out, is not simply ecological integrity or environmental concern. It's social, economic, and political. So what we're seeing now is the, the lack of ability to compartmentalize these issues. 
So increasingly, justice is both social justice and environmental justice. That these ideas of segmentation that can be useful academically and strategically ultimately might not be all that helpful or accurate. That you can't look at ecological concerns apart from social justice concerns and political and economic concerns. All of them are deeply related. And this goes back to really the ancient Greek understanding of oikos, O-I-K-O-S, which means household or home. Well, the words ecology, economy, and ecumenical all come from that word. So this is, again, getting back to a kind of understanding of how do we live together on our home in a mutually enhancing and flourishing way? We can subdivide all of this, but it's a functioning household. And right now it's dysfunctional. So the question is, how do we do this in an integrative way? So that's why these various strands, I think, are being woven together even more tightly now than they were in the past. Right. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting, you mentioned the sort of the ESG perspective, and it was obviously one of those is, is governance. And that brings us back to this question of democracy and how we govern ourselves and our ability to be sustainable within you know, different versions of governance. And so I'm curious, you know, as a to bring us home, or at least bring us home into this sort of foundational piece, how do you see the tie between democracy and sustainability? And how does the erosion of democracy begin to undermine sustainability efforts? Thank you. Yes. As I ponder this question, I'm remembering a conversation I had with my Uncle Ambrose. We called him Uncle Dooney. At the time, he was 95. And he was a pioneer of what you might call corporate social responsibility before that term ever existed. He worked for a paint company as an executive. And he said, at the heart of sustainability is respect for the individual. If you don't respect the individual, and he was speaking of employees in this case, you won't have anything flowing that's sustainable. When I think about that, I think of Aldo Leopold, who, as you know, is one of the founders of environmental ethics. And his Sand County Almanac, which came out posthumously in 1949, had his groundbreaking essay called The Land Ethic. And there, in essence, he says, a thing is right when it tends to maintain the integrity stability, and beauty of the biotic community. Moreover, in order to enact that land ethic, we need to develop an ecological conscience, which involves love, respect, and admiration for the land. Further on, he says in that essay that the human must move away from the role of master and conqueror to just plain member and citizen. This is the 1940s. This is a time when Stalin and Stalin's policies in the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union itself are still very strong in the political worldview. He could have used comrade. He doesn't. He uses citizen. Because this, out of his perspective, is essential for our participatory involvement in wildlife conservation, in ecological restoration, and in the flourishing society. Where can we best have love, respect, and admiration for the land, meaning the whole biotic community, if we're not free to express that? So for me, some of the founding insights from pioneers like Leopold come out of a democratic sensibility of freedom, of imagination, and of the ability to critique and participate in government policies without fear of retribution. In addition, when you fast forward to the 60s, 
and the publication of Silent Spring. We see there with Rachel Carson another instantiation of democracy and ecological sustainability. That book caused a firestorm, and many wanted to suppress that book. The American Experience, the PBS series, did a very fine documentary on the gestation of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And it's quite a story, because she first got a letter from a woman near a bird sanctuary in the United States who said, a plane has just flown over spraying toxics on the bird sanctuary and thousands of birds are going into toxic shock and dying. What can you do about it? That began the process of what would become Silent Spring. She first proposed an article to Reader's Digest and they turned it down. At this point, she was a highly respected and successful author. She then realized she's going to have to go through her publisher and her agent and do a book. And Houghton Mifflin contracts the book, but she takes on the big chemical companies and they knew she was going to be very critical. So they wrote menacing and threatening legal letters to Houghton Mifflin saying, if you publish this, we will sue you because she's a communist, she's a spinster, and she's not a real scientist because she doesn't have a PhD. They said, we vetted her, we're going ahead. Shortly before the book came out, the New Yorker decided to print excerpts of Silent Spring. They got the same menacing letters from the Velsicol Chemical Company and others saying, if you continue this, we're going to sue. And they say, we're going to publish. Just as the book was published, the news broadcaster at CBS with, I think it was Eric Severide, said, we're going to do an interview with her in her home. Well, they put out the promotion for that programming and all the advertisers pulled the plug. They were not going to be advertising on the Rachel Carson interview. But CBS News, at that point, not owned by a larger company like Viacom, they said, no, this is important. We're moving ahead. The interview occurred and sitting home in his living room, was Senator Abraham Ribicoff from Connecticut. Now, I don't know if he read Sun Spring or if he had seen the New Yorker articles, but he saw that interview and he was transfixed. And the next day he called for hearings on the use of DDT in the U.S. Senate. This led to the prohibition of the use of DDT in the United States and in Canada and a concern about it worldwide. It was a chain of courage that could only really happen in a democratic society. In addition, Senator Ribicoff brought Rachel Carson in front of a U.S. Senate hearings committee. And that committee asked her about this connection between democracy and ecological integrity. Sustainability was not an in vogue word at the time. And she said, I cannot foresee the founding fathers of the United States after they're proclaiming the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to say that people can freely pollute the air we breathe or the food we eat. She said, if they couldn't envision it, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't have prohibited it, that this is a fundamental right in democracy to have a clean environment, to have clean air, and to be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness with a non-toxified environment. So she rooted it into the founding fathers of the United States and that democratic tradition. So in some of the great forerunners of our current environmental sustainable thinking, you see this connection that is made between democracy, participatory involvement in governance, and ecological sustainable policies. This is what I think is at risk when you have the erosion of democracy, which will lead to an erosion of sustainable practices. Uh, when it, do you want to carry on from that thought or shall I ask another question? Well, just another dimension of that. One thing that also happened was 
Secretary of Interior Udall supported Rachel Carson, as did the Kennedy administration. So instead of buckling under from the pressure from chemical companies, which were really very upset with Rachel Carson's silent spring, they supported her and they helped give her cover. And a number of years ago, I was at the Beinecke Library at Yale University where Rachel Carson's archives are housed. And I was looking at her notes as she was testifying before the U.S. Senate. And looking at her marginal notes, she kept referring to the support that she was getting from the Kennedy administration. That that was a key moment where a democratically elected government or a Democrat government, Democratic government, supported a scientist who was speaking for the common good ecologically. And they didn't cave in to larger corporate interests. This is why a democratic process can be so important. I haven't studied this in depth, but I think that this might be one of the greatest contributions of the Kennedy administration that is not always researched. The fact that he supported and defended Rachel Carson when other administrations would certainly not have done so because the chorus of powerful corporate interests were in unison singing against her story. Yeah, for sure. And that, I mean, and what's interesting about that is you see how important in those cases, the ability to have someone to push back against, against corporate interest is right. Like the moment, the further you can see corporate capture, which again, is only getting worse in our current state. And when you think about the erosion of democracy, especially in the States, it's sort of inextricably tied uh, with corporate influence, you know, whether it's the ability for corporations to declare money as free speech and all these other ways. You can imagine how much harder it is even now to be a sort of senator or congressperson. I mean, you hear stories of congresspeople basically spending half their time raising money and trying to raise money for their next term, and they're only in power for two years. And so these people are incredibly, incredibly susceptible to this kind of corporate pressure. And yeah, I mean, you can definitely see how easy it would be to to fall victim to that with, you know, like if, if you know, if, if you're being, if every advertiser is going to pull itself off the air to avoid this person speaking out, I can't imagine that person being able to do as much as they could in sort of today's environment unless they really had some strong champions in government and in a functioning democracy. Exactly. And, you know, what we have now in the United States, as you know, in addition to the corporate pressure, is a kind of indoctrinated populace via MAGA, you know, Make America Great Again, Trump ideology, that bombards lawmakers who do not go along with them or their view whether they be Republican or Democrat. So AOC, you know, Cortez, she faces death threats all the time. And she has for a long time. So in addition to the kind of corporate pressures, she has to deal with a radicalized, extremist, right-wing bevy of hateful people who are threatening her. And we saw this during the recent debates in the United States Congress on who would be Speaker of the House. So potential voters in the House of Representatives from the Republican Party who weren't going to vote the way that the MAGA people wanted, well, they received death threats themselves. They saw firsthand what has been going on. So this is spilling into the courts in the New York civil case that Trump is facing. The judge, Ergoyen, his assistant, have repeatedly gotten dozens, if not hundreds, of death threats. In fact, if I'm recalling correctly, CNN reported that they had gotten a transcript of the death threats that this particular judge, Ergoyen, had received in New York. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was something like 250 pages single-spaced when they printed out the text. Now, this is how 
authoritarianism begins. When you threaten people in your House of Representatives or your Congress or your Parliament with retribution if they don't follow your will, and then you try to corrupt the courts through intimidation and jury members, etc. And this is what's happening here. So any kind of democratic process for supporting not only the rule of law, but the kind of ecological advances that those rules in the legislature have promoted, all become endangered. When we look at authoritarian governments, some people will say, you know, they'll argue, well, they have the power to make edicts that can be sweeping. So sometimes the examples are used, and this is also used in a recent article in that uh, Rutledge Review by a German political science scientist, his name is Stefan Worster, and he's looking at democratic versus autocratic regimes. And he said, you know, some argue that Singapore and China have been able to make you know, strides in the area of sustainability without the entanglements of the democratic process. But that begs the question, is that really sustainable? If you're not able to speak freely, if you're fearful walking down the streets because you've critiqued the government, if you critique the government and you lose your home, as has happened in Singapore for members of the opposition party, because most of the real estate and apartments at one time were government-owned, is that really sustainable? No, not in terms of the social justice, equity, cultural, and economic goals of the sustainable development goals, or this larger understanding of our deeper love, respect, and admiration, not only for the land, but for individuals. You see, I think a dimension of this, and it might be something to explore later, is something that doesn't often get articulated, but it's at the foundation of environmental ethics, as articulated by Aldo Leopold. And that's a notion of love. And I was just part of a conference at the University of Toronto Mississauga campus on sustainability, and I was part of a panel on love and sustainability, and people looking at that role and how important it is for sustainability. And this is this notion of compassion and respect that are integral to a kind of sensitivity that leads to a flourishing of the ecological, social, and economic worlds. And it's something that isn't always captured in our policy analysis or in our academic examination of these issues. But I think that's one reason why the United Nations is thinking of sustainability and spirituality as a connection. I think it's one reason why people are listening and have been so moved by Jane Goodall and her work, because she explicitly talks about love, love not only for chimpanzees, but for ecosystems and for the people in the regions that are threatened. Under authoritarianism, there's not much room for that. And you could take an example of Bolsonaro in Brazil, for example. Brazil had been making great strides in protecting its rainforest before he assumed power. When Bolsonaro assumed power, we saw a tremendous destruction of the Amazonian rainforest under his leadership. There was a 52.9% increase in deforestation in the Amazonian rainforest by 2022. I mean, he worked hard to destroy that rainforest. He did not waste time. In addition, with loggers and miners moving into protected indigenous areas, there was increasing violence against indigenous populations who had been promised protection. These were removed in the name of an authoritarian, aggressive, and neoliberal, I would argue, regime. It's no wonder that he supports Trump and that Trump loves Bolsonaro. Both bring an authoritarian anti-democratic vision 
to their particular world, worlds and political spheres. Donald Trump's environmental record is disastrous as president, as we know. He weakened the Environmental Protection Agency and so many others. Um, and just most recently, as you know, when asked about being a dictator for a day, he was given a lobball question by Sean Hannity several times. Really, can you assuage everyone's worries that you're going to be a dictator? You're not going to. I'll be a dictator for a day, day one, so that I can build the wall and drill, drill, drill. Well, both are anti-democratic, both are despotic, and both are anti-human and anti-environment. My wife and I have spent a number of years doing research along the U.S.-Mexico border and have seen that wall and have talked to the researchers who are exploring how devastating it is, not for only for the refugees, and thousands have died in the desert trying to cross around that wall, but in addition to many species and to water flows whose migratory habits are absolutely disrupted, whose ability to find mates is absolutely occluded by the Klieg lights that line that border, and how their whole riparian systems that cross that border are shifting and leading to disastrous consequences for aquatic life and other riparian life. But the Environmental Protection Agency's protections of that border were removed in the name of national security under the Trump administration. So this is why authoritarianism, at least in these two instances, is not sustainable. It's harmful to the human and the more than human worlds. And a democratic process is what can stop them particularly if it's a democratic process that doesn't give itself completely over to corporate or other interests. Yeah. And that's, I think, where I would love to go for just a quick second, because I think it's important to differentiate because really increasingly, it feels like in our current world, there is a marriage between the concepts of democracy and sort of neoliberal, neoliberal economic policy. More and more and more, it feels like to be considered a democracy, you must, what really that means is you must fall into neoliberal economics. Like the more free a corporation is to do whatever it likes, the more sort of our Western society sort of sees being a democracy in some ways. And the, and the more that the state tries to impose its sort of regulations, and in some ways that's seen as less democratic because each individual economic actor, like if we see people's economic actors, then the, then the state is infringing on their right and somehow is being less democratic, despite the fact that if we understand each individual being to be a, a human rather than being an economic actor, the state is actually probably protected and working in their interests. And so I'm curious if you can sort of talk to me about that sort of difference there and, and the ways that the sort of neoliberal turn is having its erosion of democracy, maybe rather than the opposite. Yes, fascinating points there, Steph. As you were talking, I was reminded of the Bush administration. This is George Bush, the second quote unquote, and his response to the nine 11 attacks, as you recall, he told people to go out and shop. You can't let the terrorists win. How do you show your patriotism? You go out and shop. Wow. I have a friend who was in New York City at the time of the attacks and was a Republican who voted for George Bush. He went to give blood and everyone was giving blood, so they didn't need his blood. And then he heard George Bush say that. And he said, I felt like there was mealy cotton in my mouth. It made me sick to hear this as a Republican. He had a memory of World War II through his parents and how people bought war bonds, and they participated in scrap drives and rubber drives and rationing because that's how they supported the war effort, not by going out and shopping. And so to your question about the neoliberal onflus of democracy or the culture, it relates to a worldview. And that worldview is one of consumerism, I feel, that has our identity 
tied into what we can buy, what we drive, what we live in, what we wear, and that this becomes the kind of life way of democracy. Somehow consumerism equals democracy. And anything that threatens consumerism is a threat to democracy. We have to fight for our way of life. Well, if our way of life is overextended consumerism, and we're not able to do that because something's happening in the culture or in aggressive terrorist or other kind of enemy threats, what are we fighting for? And so this is a kind of backgrounder to where we are right now, because we see a kind of business model, consumerist model sloshing over from the business world into our educational world, into our political world, into our, um, into our areas of even religious values. I remember years ago, I was president of the Religious Education Association of the U.S. and Canada, and this was after Reagan had been elected in 1980, and that was a major turn, at least in the United States, toward a business model. And members of our board were saying, well, we've got to run this as a business. It's like, why? We're not a business. It's a religious ed group. Why is the business model superior? And that's part of this worldview. In addition, Steph, this touches on, and I haven't researched this, although I think others are, but it touches on a cultural shift. And part of that is how do you support that kind of framework through what kind of media and what kind of stories? And I honestly can say I've never watched a full episode of Survivor, but what I understand is that people are voted off outlets. And basically, we've done that to whole countries in Africa. We voted them off the island of economic neoliberal prosperity. So these kinds of economic policies need cultural supports. And so the narratives that these corporations are telling through programs like Survivor are, it's okay to vote people off islands. Now, showing my age, I grew up with Gilligan's Island. No one was voted off the island. <laughs> Some people say Gilligan should have been, and they might have been rescued earlier. But nonetheless, it was a message of communal solidarity, mutual love and respect, and all of us have to get off this island together. No one's going to go solo. Horny, yes, but it was part of the cultural matrix. As we shift cultural narrative, we get a different result. For sure. And so we're going to shift for a second into a music break, and then we'll come back with the last second of the show. We'll be right back with the Green Majority and Professor Stephen Jarber. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. It's becoming increasingly clear to me that we will need a second episode in the near future to continue this conversation because there's so much here. But with only about 10 to 12 minutes left, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about A, sort of what we need to begin building out of this. You know, how do we sort of give ourselves access to more democracy and what will more democracy bring us? And then, but to, to build off the previous piece of conversation around you know, the corporate capture and the power of global capitalism. I mean, one thing that seems very clear to me, at least, is that I mean, global capitalism subsumes all in a very effective way. You know, one of the 
superpowers of capitalism is that any counterculture thing will have a t-shirt in about 12 minutes these days. And so to be counterculture is almost to disengage entirely with the culture itself, because if you're not buying, you know, if you're not, almost the way you influence the system is through buying into the system. And, and to push back against that system is, is quite actually difficult because, you know, if you don't have any money or not using money, it's actually quite difficult to, to pull back out. And so it does become sort of, a, 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 to use your words in the, in the break, a, a monoculture of thinking in the same way that we sort of are, have a monoculture of, of crops and plants in our agriculture world, you know, we, which is brittle. You know, we've talked about this forever. You, you talk to people who are in farming and agriculture, having a monoculture is very, very brittle because if something comes along that, is, that can take that one seed down, every other seed is, is, is away. Yet in some ways, climate change is that seed or is that, is that, is that blight that will take down you know, a neoliberal capitalism because it just doesn't have what in it to be able to fight back. And so, yes, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of thought there. I'm wondering if you can sort of piece, piece out maybe the way that we can begin to find our own thinking and how we can use that our own thinking to move into a more democratic world that might also be able to, to be sustained. Yeah. So thanks for that colored in background. Yeah. One of the essays that I have always been deeply touched by, and I always share with my students is Vandana Shiva's monocultures of the mind. And as you know, Vandana Shiva in India has worked with farmers and the Chipko movement, the original tree huggers, women who went out and hugged trees so they wouldn't be destroyed by government foresters because they relied on that forest to live. And subsequently with her work among Indian farmers and her fight against GMO, genetically modified, you know, organisms in the agricultural world, she relates the monocrop culture to monocultures of the mind. And this gets into what we were talking about in terms of a kind of consumerist group thing. You know, David Lloyd wrote a fascinating article a number of years ago. He's a Buddhist scholar. It was the religion of the market. You know, looking at the religion of the marketplace. And he said, since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the adoption of a market economy by China's government, in a sense, there has been a kind of one world cosmology of consumerism and market economy, that you didn't have the face-off between a democratic capitalist world and a Soviet communist world or communist China versus democratic U.S. with free enterprise, et cetera that a consumerist market-based ideology saran wrapped itself around the globe, leading to an incredible rise in a consumer culture, but also a monoculture of seeing how we relate to the world through a consumer society. So how do we begin to break this? How do we begin to find other spaces and how can democracy find a flourishing and empowered moment? admits this sea of development of consumerism and neoliberalism. Excellent questions. A couple of, I think, hopeful interruptions that we can look at. One is COVID. Devastating, horrible, continuing. However, it also has given people pause in North America and elsewhere. We had the great resignation of people leaving their jobs, not wanting to kind of continue in the way that they were. We had people reflecting on the loss of family members through COVID and they almost had a, what's it all about Alfie moment? What are we doing? The empowerment of labor unions as a result of some of the developments through this, where the whole collapse of the system in terms of the consumer economy was on pause in the early shutdowns of COVID. And people began to reflect a little differently on their lives. Can we work from home? Can we maybe find another job rather than be treated terribly in our jobs that are minimum wage or less? What is the role of unions when our CEOs are making fabulous amounts of money and we're being screwed on the assembly line? This it was a kind of blip where people began to see the world at least a little differently and literally because the air pollution from jets were not filling the skies. 
So that was a little momentary place where people started talking about, we need to get outside. We need more green space. In Toronto, as you recall, they closed Lakeshore Boulevard on Sunday so that people could be outside. All of a sudden, things that were never imaginable and people had advocated for, and this was impossible, became possible. The government would take over in Toronto hotels and house homeless people in them. Well, people have been advocating that and said, never, that can never happen. It did happen. That government can't do anything, right? Government is hamstrung. All of a sudden, government had money and was responding. I have one friend whose mother is a conservative voter and has been. She said, I'll never vote conservative again because they told me government couldn't do anything. COVID happened and I saw government do something. That is a little glimmer, a little glimpse, a little intimation through COVID and the lockdown of some things that can happen. In addition, many people realized that their connection to the more than human world was really important. They couldn't socialize indoors. They started walking outdoors. And of course, as we know, and you, you know, well, the rise in attendance and participation at provincial parks and national parks shot up. People sought green spaces. They found them and they began to realize what a lot of researchers have been talking about, that we need the more than human world for our psychic, spiritual, mental flourishing. When we are deprived of interactions with the flora and fauna of our regions, we become less intelligent and more anxious. This builds on the work of Richard Louvre and Last Child in the Woods and Nature Deficit Disorder, but it's gone far beyond that in terms of neuroscience. And what neuroscientists are talking about now is the chemical release that happens when we are exposed to fractals in nature, when we're exposed to animals in nature, when we're exposed to the freshets that flow from rivers and the beautiful sunsets that we experience while walking. This isn't ancillary to our integrity as people. They're finding it's a scent. So how do we begin to articulate these in a way that has pragmatic purchase in terms of policy and democracy. I was joined by other professors at U of T, John Robinson and Professor Scott Prudham, in advocating for car-free time in High Park. And there's a movement to have cars not in High Park. Central Park has done this. Other parks around the world have done this. Why do we have to be worried about being hit by a car while we're riding a bike or walking through Hyde Park? Oh, there's access. Well, can we have electric jitneys bring people in? There's alternatives here. Why is this important? Not only for the human, but even for the flora and fauna. So the turtle protectors of Hyde Park, started by Carolyn Crowley, an indigenous Mi'kmaq woman of Irish African ancestry. Started during COVID, seeing a mama turtle about to disgorge her eggs in the middle of a road and having to protect her, led to an indigenous-led initiative in High Park of the Turtle Protect. A car-free area in High Park, one of our largest downtown parks, if not the largest, would help turtles, it would help salamanders, it would help all kinds of wildlife, as well as the human. That happened in COVID. We begin to imagine new interrelationships and the importance of these interrelationships. And the more we understand our deep interconnection with each other and the more than human world. Incidentally, it was out of love for turtles that Carolyn started that. And that's in a very dynamic and important movement, small, but very important. And so I think that taking that step to really understand our deep interconnection, to see what the role of love, respect, and admiration, to use Leopold's words, are in our relationship with each other, with a more than human world, with environmental policy, with people who are oppressed and impoverished, and with people who are homeless and mentally ill on our streets. 
we are connected with them. And as long as we do not have policies that enrich them, protect them, and sustain them, we're going to have a continued decline in our democratic and ecological values. Part of this, again, building on many indigenous insights, is to realize our deep interconnection. And I know that can sound hackneyed or sentimental, but it's being proven day after day scientifically, empirically, psychologically, and culturally. And this is important to recognize for any kind of future sustainable democratic tradition. In addition, I think that it's so important for any policy that we erect and any protection of democracy that we enact, that we look first at the most marginalized and the most vulnerable, ecologically, socially. If the policies are not helping them or protecting them, I think we have to revisit them because the wealthy will always be protected and the middle class will find its way. But the most vulnerable, if they're not there at the beginning of the consideration of democratic principles or democratic policies, they will be left out. Amazing. And so I think obviously not amazing particular to the be left. Thank you for your thoughts. The, and I think we'll have to leave it there, but I think that's a perfect place to hopefully come back to in, in part two of this conversation which will be talking about how taking care of these people and ensuring, you know, making sure that the, that there are no, you know, no disposable people as, as the term that comes from, you know, Latin liberationists, Latin American liberationists, or, and that there's no disposable, you know, ecological spaces either is, is going to be central to this work. And so we'll come back to that in a future episode, but for right now, thank you so much. This has been Professor Stephen Sharper on the Green Majority. Enjoy. We'll be back next week. And thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Stefan. And thank you to your listeners. Bye-bye.